0: Hello and welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show, we read short stories by a variety of authors. Today, we are beginning a reading of the autobiography of Marie Tussaud. Madame Tussaud is a fascinating artist who lived and worked during a period of political strife. Her memoirs are a precious glimpse into that eventful time. Memoirs of Madame Tussaud, Her Eventful History. CHAPTER One, EARLY HISTORY AND THE REMINISCENCE. M. CURTIS, THE PRINCE DE CONTI, VOLTAIRE, Rousseau, FRANKLIN. About 1750, a widow named Mary Walter settled in Bern, Switzerland. She had arrived at middle age, but was still very beautiful, or rather, what may be termed, handsome. She had seven sons, and being the daughter of a Swiss clergyman, she determined to have her children educated in her native city. At this period, a veteran soldier named Gresholtz also took up his residence at Bern. The name of Gresholtz is renowned in Germany, as Percy is in England, Montmercy in France, or Vaiscompti in Italy. Joseph Gresholtz had been an aide-de-camp to General Wernser, with whom he had served during the Seven Years' War and was so mutilated with his wounds that his forehead was laid bare, and his lower jaw had been shot away. Its place had to be supplied by a silver plate. He was, however, a hero, and highly esteemed, and the widow, Mary Walter, accepted him as her second husband. The ceremony of their marriage being witnessed by all the elite in Bern. Gersholtz did not long survive the union. He died in 1760, and two months after his death little Marie was born, the lady who afterwards became Madame Tussaud. Madame gescholz remained in Bern for six years after her second widowhood, and then she yielded to her brother's earnest entreaties to take up her abode with him in Paris, and with this visit commences the extraordinary career of Madame Tussaud. Her uncle... John Christopher Curtis was some years previously practising his profession as a medical man at Bern, when the Prince de Conti happened to be sojourning in that city, and having accidentally seen some portraits and anatomical subjects modelled in wax by M. Curtis, the prince was so struck with the exquisite delicacy and beauty which these ingenious specimens of art displayed that he called upon the artist and personally complimented him upon his talent he offered to give him not only his own patronage but secure him the support of many members of the royal family and the principal nobility in france if he would take up his residence in paris and further, at the onset of His Royal Highness, would provide for him, at his own cost, suitable apartments. Mr. Curtis, who had hitherto considered himself only an amateur in the art of modelling, was overjoyed at the approbation of a royal prince, especially one so wealthy and powerful as the Prince de Conti was at that period, and he at once profited by so favourable an opportunity. Renouncing, therefore, the medical profession, he proceeded to Paris, where he found that his royal patron had selected for him handsome apartments at the Hotel de d'Alegrie in the Rue Saint-Honor. The artist's time was, for a considerable period, wholly occupied in executing orders for the prince, whose liberality and kindness not only equaled, but rather surpassed his promises. The art of modelling in wax was, at that period in France, considered a fashionable accomplishment, and Mr. Curtis's studio became one of the lions of Paris. It was, after having practised his profession for some years, that the gifted artist, finding himself in a good penury position, repaired to Bern for the purpose of taking back with him to Paris his sister and her children. Little Marie Gescholtz was then but six years of age, but no sooner did her uncle's eyes fall upon her than he said— from this time, you are my adopted daughter. She appears to have been a precious child, and immediately fell in with these views, replying, Then I shall not call you uncle any more. I shall call you father. In her declining years, Madame Tussaud said that she had a perfect recollection of her arrival in Paris, and that she remembered with the most perfect distinctness all the circumstances connected with the accession to the throne of Louis the Sixteenth which happened about eight years after her adoption. It was indeed a wonderful change from the quiet homeliness of her mother's residence at Bern, to be introduced, child as she was, to all the great and noble in France. For the house of Mr. Curtis at this period was the resort of the most talented men of the day, particularly as regarded the literati and the artists. Among those who were frequently in the habit of dining at her uncle's, Madame Tussaud especially remembered Voltaire, rousseau dr franklin mirabeau and lafayette for though she was very young when the two former died every circumstance connected with them made a powerful impression upon her mind early reminiscences are often the most permanent and when the amour propre is flattered by a personal compliment are indelibly impressed upon the mind even in childhood Thus, Madame Tussaud, well recollected, when she was only eight or nine years of age, Voltaire used to pat her on the cheek and tell her she was a pretty dark-eyed girl. But, independent of this, little Marie-Gescholz must have had observations far beyond her years, and appears rather to have preferred the associations of older persons to those of her own age— Early accustomed to sit at her uncle's table, she speaks in her memoirs of the enjoyment she had in hearing the conversations of adults and persons possessed of superior talent, and she tells us how well she remembered the literary discussions which were sometimes conducted with much bitterness by the opposing partisans of the favourite authors of the day, observing that she never could forget the acrimony displayed between Voltaire and Rousseau in the disputes in support— perhaps of some metaphysical theory, in which themselves alone could feel interested. While the reflecting Dr. Franklin would certainly regard them merely a faint smile, and sometimes enliven his countenance as he coolly contemplated the infuriated disputants. But the young Lafayette was full of fire and animation, listening with eagerness to all that passed, and his features expressive of his ardent temperament, formed a singular contrast to the philosophic doctor at whose side he sat, while the eloquence of Mirabeau shed a luster, composed as they were, of such a nucleus of talent as might justly entitle them to be styled the feast of reason and the flow of soul. Madame Tussaud's memoirs record many of these conversations, and in some instances she vividly describes the speaker's. She says that Rousseau often made bitter complaints against Voltaire for pirating his ideas. Rousseau would, in the innocence of his heart, proclaim all his inspiration to his friends, which were purely original, at Mr. Curtis's table, and which were intended to form the foundation of a future work he ever specifying that such was his object." yet he constantly had the mortification to find that voltaire would forestall him by bringing out a volume containing those very opinions which his rival had expressed and in fact the very thoughts and subjects on which he had dilated and designed as the outlines and substance of his next production During the conversation, Voltaire would scarcely appear to listen, or perhaps take the opposite view of the question, and argue with vehemence against the very doctrine which he would soon after publish to the world as his own. Bitter indeed would be the venom which was emitted when, after one of these publications appeared, the two authors met. Rousseau would launch out against Voltaire, whilst the latter's biting sarcasm in reply would nearly drive Rousseau mad— and he would quite lose his self-possession. When Voltaire retired, then would Rousseau give free vent to all his rage against his arch-rival, till he would exhaust all of the abusive vocabulary of the French language in expressing his wrath, exclaiming, "'Oh, the old monkey! The knave! The rascal!' until he was fatigued by the fury of his passion. He was younger than Voltaire by sixteen years, but they both died in the same year. The personal appearance of these two rivals, Madame Tussaud says, was the most singularly contrasted, Voltaire being very tall and thin, with a very small face which had a shriveled appearance, and he wore a large flowing wig like those which were in fashion during Louis XVI's reign. He was generally dressed in a brown coat with gold lace at the buttonholes, and a waistcoat to match with large lapets. "'reaching nearly to the knees, and small clothes of cloth of a familiar description, "'a little cocked hat and large shoes, with a flap over covering the instep, "'and striped silk stockings. "'He had a very long, thin neck, and when full-dressed, "'had ends to his neckcloth of rich lace, which hung down as low as his waist. "'His ruffles were of the same material, and in accordance with the fashion of the day, "'he wore powder and a sword.' Rousseau was much below the middle height and inclined to be stout. He wore a short, round wig with curls, something like that worn, something like that worn by George the Third, or such as coachmen of the aristocracy frequently wear now in England. He generally dressed in a snuff-coloured suit, very plain and much resembling the dress of a Quaker but at one period of his life he adopted the Armenian costume, wearing a long robe trimmed with fur and a cap of the same material. Dr. Franklin, Madame Tussaud describes as being an agreeable companion. His personal appearance was that of the most perfect simplicity, and his manners truly admirable. He was a stout man, about five feet ten inches in height. His eyes were grey and his complexion light. His hair was very long and grey. He always dressed in black, and his clothes were made in the old-fashioned style. He had, however, particularly fine legs, and was very proud of his dancing. The Marquis de Lafayette was a tall, handsome young man. He dressed in the costume then worn by a gentleman who affected not the extremes of fashion or the reverse. He was elegant in manners, full of vivacity and extremely enthusiastic. Franklin was his bosom friend, and from him Lafayette imbibed those ideas which led him across the Atlantic to aid the Americans in what he considered their struggle for freedom. Madame Tussaud, in soliloquizing upon this, says, "'From what comparatively irrelevant and unsuspected causes spring the mightiest events which shake the power of kingdoms and of empires?' The primary cause of the French Revolution may be attributed to Dr. Franklin's visit to Paris, as Lafayette was not alone in becoming the disciple of the transatlantic philosopher, for the minds of numbers of young enthusiasts among the French nobility also became impregnated with the seeds of republicanism, which, quickly germinating, were now extended to all parts of France. The Count de Mirabeau was five feet ten, and proportionately stout. He wore a profusion of his own hair, powdered and ever in a wild state. His clothes were generally of black corded velvet, made in the fashion of Louis the Sixteenth. He was much pitted with the smallpox, had very dark eyes, and his countenance was particularly animated when speaking. His powers of oratory have always been considered to exceed those of any other individual who figured in the revolution, but their merits suffered much detraction from his violence and proneness to revenge. He was supposed, however, to have been a sincere patriot, whether mistaken or otherwise, as to the means he adopted of serving his country. He used often to dine at Mr. Curtis's, but Madame Tussaud asserts that so much was Mirabeau's addiction to inebriety that before he quitted the house he became so disagreeable that her uncle always declared that he would never invite him again. Yet when Mirabeau paid his next visit, such were the effects of his fascination that he was sure to receive from the artist another invitation, Mr. Curtis forgetting all the faults of the talented orator when charmed with the exaggerating powers of his conversation. Although of noble birth, to display his contempt of rank and title, he rented a shop and sold cloth by the yard to the immense disgust of the French aristocracy he was, however, a great libertine and spendthrift, and, having dissipated a large fortune, he became overwhelmed with debts and embarrassments. Doubts are generally entertained whether he died a natural death. Many suppose he was poisoned. Voltaire was a frequent visitor at Mr. Curtis's house, and was immensely popular at this time in Paris, and Madame Tussaud, who did not like his principles, admired many of his actions. Chapter 2. Uncle and Niece, Celebrated Characters, The Niece at the Palace, Luxuries of the Court, Poverty of the French Peasantry. Marie Schultz, however, did not employ the whole of her time in entertaining guests or in contemplating upon men and manners. She early imbibed not only the taste, but an interest for the art in which Mr. Curtis so much excelled and so closely did she imitate her uncle, that after a few years it was impossible to distinguish as to the degrees of excellence between their performances. At that period, modelling in wax was much in vogue, in which representations of flowers, fruit, and other subjects were often most beautifully executed, and in such perfection had the niece arrived in giving character and accuracy to her portraits, that whilst still very young, to her was confided the task of taking casts from the heads of Voltaire Rousseau, Franklin, Mirabeau, and the principal men of the day, who most patiently submitted themselves to the hands of the fair artist. The cast which he took from the face of Voltaire was only two months before he died. Now we arrive at the crowning feature in Madame Tussaud's history, one which even afterwards attached her to the royal family of France." Which led her, in her zeal for the royal cause, to be herself imprisoned, to deeply sympathise with the sufferings of many innocent persons, and finally to leave the country of her adoption and settle in England, thankful to be free from the dreadful acts committed by all parties during the period of the French Revolution. Amongst the numerous members of the royal family, who were often accustomed to visit Mr. Curtis's apartments and admire his works and those of his niece, was Madame Elizabeth, the King's sister. The princess, being desirous herself to learn the art of modelling in wax, sought the services of Marie Gescholz, and Her Royal Highness became so attached to her young instructress that she applied to Mr. Curtis to permit her niece to reside at the Palace of Versailles and become her companion and friend. "'Madame Toussaint never forgot the kindness she received within the palace, "'nor the amiable qualities of the members of the royal family. "'She says in her memoirs, "'Had not the rank and the misfortunes of Madame Elizabeth "'claimed the sympathy of posterity, "'her virtues alone so endured her to those who knew the royal lady "'that her memory would still have been indelibly impressed "'upon the hearts of those who enjoyed her friendship. "'She was strictly religious and charitable.' in the purest sense of the word, in all her thoughts and actions, benevolence and a sense of generosity characterized all she did. In fact, so amiable does Madame Tussaud represent the princess to have been, that up to the close of her own life she would never speak of Madame Elizabeth without shedding tears. The young artist was required to sleep in the room next to Her Royal Highness in order to be near her. And very frequently, Mademoiselle Gescholz was the means of conveying arms to private pensioners, and so munificent was the Princess in dispensing her benefactions for the alleviation of the condition of the unfortunate, that she generally anticipated her allowance, and very frequently borrowed money, rather than reject the appeal of an individual whom she thought needed relief. Concerning the habits of the Princess Elizabeth, Madame Tussaud says... The princess would frequently rise at six and ride for an hour or two, then having breakfast she would occupy herself with the timbre, working, reading, writing, and sometimes playing upon the harpsichord, which, with other fashionable amusements, generally employed the greater portion of her time. She was very fond of modeling in wax figures of Christ, the Virgin Mary, and other holy subjects, many of which she presented to her friends but one of her occupations strongly exemplifies the superstition of that period. It was the custom, if any person was afflicted by lameness in the arm or leg, to send a model of the limb affected to some church, hoping that the saint to whom it might be dedicated would effect a cure, or intercede with a higher power to restore the member to its pristine vigour. Madame Elizabeth, therefore, with pious zeal, would often model in wax the legs and arms of decrepit persons who desired it, and these were afterwards suspended at the churches of Sainte-Genevieve, Saint sulpice and de Capucines de Marche, des Enfants Rouges. The palace of Versailles, where Madame Elizabeth, with the rest of the royal family, resided, was specially celebrated at the day as one of the most magnificent in the world. At the period when Madame Tussaud was a guest at this palace, the court was reveling in the acme of its gaiety. In the preceding reign, pleasure, luxury, dissipation, and even debauchery had arrived at their climax. But when Louis the Sixteenth with Marie Antoinette ascended to the throne. Although all that was splendid with every display of wealth and grandeur in the fêtes and entertainment still remained, yet they were in some degree divested of the vice and licentiousness which were uncontrollably apparent throughout the reign of their predecessor. A higher cultivation of the arts and improving state of literature, the study of different accomplishments, and increased attention to the various branches of education all contributed to induce a greater degree of refinement in the court of Versailles than that of any other court in Europe, whilst it was unrivalled for its brilliance and its gaiety, for France had gathered there her beauty and her chivalry. Such a court, presided over by a queen whose personal charms were only equaled by the eloquence and affability of her deportment, operated as a magnet which attracted the majority of the French nobility, all strove to pay their court to the rising sun." all were endeavouring to outvie each other in the strain of compliment with which they addressed their royal mistress, whose superior qualifications justly commanded their admiration, while a constant attempt at expressing their deep sense of her perfections created a high-flown style of language and a habitual tone of gallantry, until it became the necessary style in high society for ladies to be addressed in an exalted tone of imagery ever intended to convey flattery. Yet, in such a form that it could not shock the ear by too direct an appeal to the understanding, leaving, as it were, a veil, however faint, to be removed before the naked compliment could appear. Hence a figurative mode of speech, and an excess of politeness, were engendered, which could only gratify, when accompanied, as they then were, by an elegance of mien and a grace of manner which gave a blandishment to every word and action which emanated from the French noblesse of that period." Whatever could be added to the fascination of the colloquial powers by adorning the person was not neglected. The expense and richness displayed in costumes far exceeded that which is exhibited in the present day, particularly as regards male attire. The rich and costly embroidery with which the gentleman's drapery was then bedecked had a far more brilliant effect than the plain coats and waistcoats of our own time. Lace frills, powder, a sword and diamond buckles, which much contributed to give eclat to the male costume of that day, while the stomachers of the females were often one blaze of diamonds. But with the soft and gentle manners of the woman and the gallant and chivalrous tone of the men, a constant air of extreme gaiety was united, moving as they were in a vortex of pleasure their minds were employed upon nothing beyond devising new inventions for varying their enjoyments. But whilst experiencing a succession of these luxurious delights, whilst following a career of extravagant dissipation, and while basking in the lap of voluptuous ecstasy, it must not be imagined that the pleasant vices were wholly banished from the Palace of Versailles. Gaming, in particular, predominated to an excess, the Queen and Princess losing deeply, while well, the Duke of Orléans won to an immense amount. Intrigues of various descriptions were by no means strangers, although not so prevalent as during the reign of Louis the Fifteenth, It is necessary to say this before we turn to the other side of the picture, which Madame Tussaud so graphically describes in the memoirs she had left behind her. She says, "'Let us turn a while from these scenes of revelry,' from those gorgeous assemblies where wealth was lavished with a reckless hand, where profusion and luxury abounded even to satiety, where the cup of pleasure was quaffed till its votaries were bewildered with delirium of enjoyment. And let us behold the source from whence came the means to supply these costly banquets. And what do we see but an impoverished country, a peasantry in the last stages of deprivation and misery?' "'by the people being so oppressively and injudiciously taxed "'that the cultivator on whom the burden principally fell "'could scarcely even by his own hard-earned labour "'obtain a miserable sustenance, "'the major part of this produce being absorbed by the exactions of the state.' An English author who travelled in France at that period stated that he had seen a plough drawn by a wretched horse, a cow, a donkey, and a goat, whilst a peasant without shoes and stockings guided it, as a half-naked urchin was endeavouring to whip his miserable team forward. This, Madame Tussaud thinks, must be an exaggerated picture, but she is ready to admit that the excessive extravagance of the French court was paid at that period by the sweat of the peasant's brow." This was written after years of reflection, but still Madame Tussaud insists in saying that Louis the Sixteenth was kept in ignorance of his people's sufferings, that Marie Antoinette his queen combined every attribute which could be united to constitute loveliness and amiability in women, possessing youth, grace, and elegance to a degree never surpassed, a sweetness and fascination in her manners, enchanting all who ever had the happiness to be greeted by the beam of her smile." in which there was a witchery that has more than once converted the fury of her most brutal enemies into admiration she was above the middle height and had a commanding air such as did not exact but that won obedience Her complexion was so extremely fair that Madame Le Brun, the celebrated portrait painter of that period, observed, when taking the picture of the Queen, that it was impossible for the art of colouring to render justice to the exquisite delicacy and transparency of her skin. So fair a being, the one who occupied so exalted a position could not fail to constantly meet with the poison of adulation, but it never sullied the purity of her heart at least as far as Madame Tussaud was enabled to judge, and she formed her opinion from a thorough knowledge of the character of Marie Antoinette, which she conceived she had the best opportunity of acquiring from having so long lived under the same roof as her royal mistress, that she was fond of pleasure, dress, and admiration there can be no doubt, and that to the latter she might lend too willing an ear is possible.' but that she was ever induced to be guilty of any dereliction from the morality Madame Tussaud regards as the foulest calumny. Louis Sixteenth was a man of portly appearance, rather handsome than otherwise. He was nearly five feet ten in height, but perhaps stouter than is consistent with our ideas of a handsome figure. He was an intellectual man. However, he might lack that nerve and decision of character which was so peculiarly demanded by the extraordinary events which took place during his reign, and the very critical positions in which he was placed. He did not enter freely into all the extravagances and dissipation of the court, but wanted firmness and resolution to repress those costly banquets and expensive nights of revelry in which he would not participate. Instead of joining the gay throng, he would often retire to his studies— and though hunting was said to be his favourite pursuit, Madame Tussaud says lock-making was his darling recreation, and that he would be occupied hours each day in making locks, and that many of those on the doors of the palace of Versailles were made by his own hands. She had often opportunities of conversation with his majesty, and ever found him very affable and unreserved in his manner, which was untainted by any assumption of pride or superiority, and his demeanour perfectly free from that appearance of condescension or air of protection which persons of his rank so often adopt towards their inferiors. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a story you'd like us to read, then contact us through our Facebook page, and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.